reading from the prophet Isaiah. Oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down so that the mountains would quake at your presence as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries so that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome deeds that we did not expect, you came down and the mountains quaked at your presence. From ages past, no one has heard, no ear has perceived, no eye has seen any God besides you who works for those who wait for him. You meet those who gladly do right, those who remember you in your ways. But you were angry and we sinned. Because you hid yourself, we transgressed. We have all become like one who is unclean, and all of our righteous deeds are like a filthy cloth. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls on your name or attempts to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have delivered us into the hand of our iniquity. Yet, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay. You are, the, you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Do not be exceedingly angry, O Lord, and do not remember iniquity forever. Now consider, we are all your people. This is the word of the Lord. The gospel reading this morning is from Mark chapter 13. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. And Jesus said, but in those days after that suffering, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the son of man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heaven. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts forth its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, neither the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Beware, keep alert, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey, when he leaves home and puts his slaves in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to be on the watch. Therefore, keep awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or at dawn, or else he may find you asleep when he comes suddenly. And what I say to you, I say to all, keep awake. This is the gospel of the Lord. 
Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your presence, your love toward us, for your word and for your spirit and for this season of Advent. We pray now that you would meet us right where we are and that as we come into this space with all of our experiences from the past week, all of our hopes and desires, all of our pains and joys, that you would meet us right here and speak your word of truth into our hearts, that you would make your light to dawn in our darkness. Teach us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Advent is here. Uh, it's the first day of our new liturgical year. It's a new season uh, and a new sermon series that we begin today uh, that we're calling Becoming an Advent People or Being an Advent People. It's a, a way that we're talking about uh, what it means to become a people of hope, of renewed hope. Advent, it's a season of expectation. It's a season of longing. It's a season of looking for light in the darkness in a way that trains us to be a people of hope as we practice together this discipline of hope, this discipline of watching and waiting for the Lord. So watching and waiting, these are these two experiences of life in the world that we know all too well, right? Experiences that often frustrate us, that leave us weary, Experiences that test our patience uh, or often make us feel powerless, really, to act or affect change in our own situation uh, or in the world. Waiting. Uh, just to show you what I've been reading these days, Dr. Seuss says about waiting, uh, he describes the waiting place. This is in the, oh, the Places You'll Go. It's a book I read to my kids all the time. But he describes in the middle of that book the waiting place, the most dreadful place where people are just waiting. And he describes it as this place that you need to escape. It's a place that you need to move on from and get onto something better and brighter where the boom bands are playing, he says. Waiting. It's something we try desperately to, to avoid whenever possible, and I think it's something that we're all collectively and culturally getting worse at in general. I mean, John just mentioned you know, the, the one man, Amazon Prime, uh, right, who, who meets us on December 25th. Well, you know, two-day shipping, that, that used to be like this really awesome accelerated way to get stuff, and now it's just like too long. Do you, do you feel that, or is that just me? It's like all of a sudden two-day shipping feels like it's just, why isn't it one-day shipping, you know? Why can't it come by the, by the end of the day? Don't we have the technology for that? Many of you, I imagine all of us, know uh, the kinds of experiences of waiting that are actually a lot harder than that as well, right? The indefinite waiting waiting for things that may or may not come. Or maybe waiting for things that seem to be guaranteed, but the timeline is unestablished. My memory that sort of lingers as my paradigm for understanding waiting is when Bonnie and I took uh, a group, this is when she was a high school teacher in Georgia, we took a group to Italy, uh, and I got to be the, the chaperone that gets a free trip to Italy out of it. Well, we had a layover in Chicago O'Hare Airport with 19 teenagers, and we ma managed to get delayed because that's what happens when you fly through O'Hare. We have 19 teenagers, and basically our flight was delayed for 21 hours, but we didn't know that. It was 20 minutes, and then another 20 minutes, and then another 20 minutes for 21 hours, <laughs> right? And so we're sitting there with this group of teenagers needing something to do, but we're powerless to act. We can't really make it any different. We're just sort of stuck there waiting for some indefinite thing, right? 
And that's how we live life. I mean, we live in this space of uncertainty. We live in a space of vulnerability where we're waiting. Waiting for that career opportunity or for that special person or for graduation or for healing. Waiting for that someone you love to love you back or for a difficult season to pass or for a particular weight that you're carrying to finally be lifted off your shoulders. And sometimes it's just hard in those moments of waiting, especially the long ones. It's hard to know how to relate well to the waiting. How to live in the present in light of the future that we hope will come or that we fear might come. How to relate to our hopes and fears honestly without resorting to denial or being left with despair. Well, Advent is a season that teaches us how to wait. It's a season that forms us as a people who wait in hope. And the way that Advent does that for us, it's not automatic, but it does that for us as we begin to participate in Advent stuff. And Advent stuff is the kind of thing where we engage the story of Israel and we rehearse it. We rehearse Israel's story of waiting for God to act on their behalf as they anticipated this long-awaited day of the Lord when God would come to deliver his people. So we rehearse the story of Israel in their waiting, and we also we remember how God finally did act in Jesus, how God did meet their expectations how God came to dwell among us as one of us. How God came in Jesus to wait with us and to hope with us and to share our burdens and ultimately to die beneath the weight of those burdens and rise again from their ashes into a glory that he offers to share with us. That's the Advent stuff that we do that we practice together this time of year that forms us and shapes us as a people of hope, people of remembrance, a people of watching and waiting. The remembrance that we enter into in this season, it's not, o- it's not only one that looks back at the God who came down to us in Christ, but it's one that reorients us to the world so that we look upward to God and outward toward our neighbor and forward toward that day when he shall come again, watching and waiting in Advent hope. And that's what we want and that's what we need, isn't it? N.T. Wright, as he reflects on Advent, he says, you know, hope in the night, not glitzy commercialism, is what we want and need. And that's what Advent is all about. So just a couple of reflections on these texts that we just read on how they shape us to be a people of watching and waiting. So this Isaiah 64 text that Tim just read for us, that begins, oh, that you would tear open the heavens and come down. What a beautiful cry of hope and faith uh, that we get from this prophecy, from this book of Isaiah, from this time in which Israel was living uh, in light of this dark night of exile and then return from exile and a memory of what was and an experience of, of the present that didn't match up to what they remembered from the past, kind of living with this persistent dark shadow in the world and asking, oh God, would you come down and make it right? 
It's this hope that they give voice to in this prophecy, this hope in this God who would come in justice and righteousness to deliver the people and to drive away the shadow of evil and the darkness that covers the earth and infects our lives. And as they give voice to that, that hope, they immediately acknowledge what? That that kind of hope prompts a confession of sin, Right? which is what you see in this passage, this confession of sin that recognizes the reality that none of us lives consistently in the way of love and truth. We all live in the shadows more or less. None of us is purely part of the solution without also being somehow part of the problem. And so even as they confess in this moment, oh God, would you tear open the heavens and come down? They acknowledge with fear and trembling the reality. Well, who could stand, though, before this God? What would happen if he actually came near? When we read this prophecy of Isaiah now from our vantage point on this side of Christ's coming, and when we take these words even to our own lips as this cry of faith and hope, Oh God, would you tear open the heavens and come down? God, would you come near? The beauty of, of praying this and reading this in the context of the first advent of Jesus is that we do so knowing that God has already done just that. He has torn open the heavens and he has come all the way down to us. We pray this prayer in light of the great mystery that God has bound himself to us in his descending and dying love so that his resurrecting and enlivening power may gather all of us in from the ends of the earth. He's come near. He's torn open the heavens and come down for you, for me, for the world. And the fear and trembling voiced here in this prophecy in Isaiah is met not with the terrible judgment and fire expected in such a prophecy, but when Jesus came down, when God came down to make his home in this man's body, Jesus, he came in humility and mercy and gentleness. He embraced the sinful people in order to offer forgiveness and healing. God has come near. And as I think about what this means for us, this Advent, as we begin to reflect on this reality and live into this mystery a bit, what does this mean for us? God has come near. The veil is thin, friends. The barrier that separates God and his world from us and ours, it's thinner than we think. We, we think of God being distant and away and far off as if we can't get there or approach him. But re and the reality is that God has torn that open and has entered. And he's nearer than we think. He's here among us. His presence is real. And so this Advent, what does it look like for us to be drawn into the mystery of dwelling with God? Of allowing his presence to awaken us and allowing his light to dawn in the darkness of our lives. The veil is thin. For those of you who are Stranger Things fans, apologies to those of you who aren't. But you know how like the upside down, right? It's like it's, like it's this world, but it's not. 
What we see in Jesus is that God has come to make his home with us, to bring into intersection God's world and ours in a way that he's closer than we think. And he's invited us to dwell in him in a way where we live out heaven on earth in a deep and mysterious way as we commune with our God who has torn open the heavens to come near to us. This Advent, what would it look like for us to live into that reality a little bit more deeply? To pray knowing that the veil is thin. To love our neighbors with our eyes and our words and our hearts, knowing that this is God's image bearer in my midst. God is here with us. This is God's beloved whom he calls me to love. This Advent, how can we engage that hope a little more deeply and let it sink into us a little bit more profoundly as we are drawn into the presence of God? Mark 13. This is a kind of a strange text. It's, it's one that, um, that it's hard to know what to do with sometimes as Jesus here uh, just really moments before he's captured and, and you know, arrested and, and is going to his death, he's, he's giving this, this discourse, this teaching, and he begins to use the Old Testament language and imagery of the day of the Lord, this long-awaited day that God would act, that the Old Testament prophets spoke of. Jesus uses those images to describe what is about to happen. Uh, and it's sort of this gloom and doom language, right? Uh, and then he even says that not, I'll tell you what, but in this generation, those of you who are hearing this right now, you know, this generation is not going to pass away before these things happen. And it's, it's, it's strange to read that text and we wonder, what is he talking about? You know, is he talking about the fall of Jerusalem that would happen uh, a few decades after that? Or is he talking about the day of Pentecost when God would do something and the new creation would burst forth in a way that it hadn't before on the day of the Lord? Maybe both, maybe, maybe something like that. But what he does say is that he says, look, let the fig tree be your teacher. The fig tree is one of the only non-evergreens in Palestine, and, uh, and so it's one that loses its leaves and gets them back. And when the leaves come back, surely summer is around the corner. And what Jesus says is, look at what's going on and let them be for you an indicator that God is keeping his promise. It's not meant to be a clock that tells us the hour or the day. Jesus says as much even right here. But rather, it's a reminder that God's promise is real. And as surely as you are seeing these things happen before you, as these things happen in the course of history, as, as the Spirit comes, as Jesus' own judgment happens as he goes to the cross, so surely is God moving his promise forward in the world. So surely will God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. You and I live today in light of the future that we anticipate or that we hope for, right? I mean, it's what we do. If you're a student, you anticipate graduation, so you study, you pass your classes, that's what you're doing. At every stage of life, we're doing things today in light of the future we expect. And Jesus tells us in this space that the way you and I live today, faithfully and wisely today, is to live in light of the future, not the one that you and I may make by our own efforts, but to live in light of the future that God has promised to bring. Because that is the future that is coming. It's guaranteed by God, and Jesus' own death and resurrection and the sending of the Spirit are this guarantee that God's promise is in fact moving forward. And Jesus says, look, 
stay awake. Stay awake. I'm coming back. The future that God has promised, it's coming. Live today in light of that future. Don't get sluggish. Don't tune out. Don't pretend as if it's not. Or don't think that this is just all some autopilot thing. But live today in light of that which God has promised to do tomorrow. When Christ will come again in glory and power to judge the world and reign over the earth. The future, he says, that we live for, the future we orient today toward. It's not retirement or graduation or success, however you and I may imagine that, or the fullness of the good life, however you and I may may conceive of that and all the ways in which we wrap our hopes and dreams around that kind of thing. Any, Any of those things may be good and fine on its own, but none of them is an end in itself. It's all part of something much larger. And Jesus says, look, It is the kingdom God has promised to bring that is coming. I am coming. Stay awake so that when I return, I find you watching and waiting, and you welcome me back. As you think about this Advent, as you think about what does it mean for us to become more and more a people of Advent hope, who are living that out in our own lives, reflect with me on this reality that the kingdom we wait and watch for will be the kingdom we work toward in our daily life. Whether it's our own little kingdoms that we may or may not be able to build or whether it's God's kingdom that God has promised and that he will bring at Christ's return. And of course, this has everything to do with all the stuff that we do in our daily lives, right? It shapes our routines. It shapes our worries, it shapes our, our excitement, the things we get excited about, the things we hope to see. It shapes the way we relate to our money, right? The way we save or spend or give our money, as John was already just talking about. And it shapes the way we draw near to or push away from other people. I actually just saw an article this past week. It's been out for a few weeks now. and It was on CNBC's website, but the title of it is psychologist says, cut these friends from your inner circle if you want to be successful. And it really is truly like a how-to get rid of difficult people in your life so that you're not weighed down by their needs and you can go on making your own little kingdom. Like this, this is the stuff that's being offered as life-guiding wisdom in our world. And it is literally the opposite of what Jesus says is the way of life and truth and love. Advent, it's a season that calls us back to a better hope. It's something that calls us back to something more substantive than than the snake oil of whatever that article is and other like-minded articles are that tell us how to be the best you and you do you and, you know, don't let other people get in your way. Advent is a season that calls us to something far more authentic far more substantive, far more life-giving than the self-centered version that we so often settle for and that is so ridiculously reinforced this time of year in the glitzy commercialism and the hallmark sentimentalism that have come to define the so-called Christmas season. Advent teaches us a better way. Advent calls us back to a better hope. It calls us to a better love to reorient our lives upward toward God, outward toward our neighbor, and forward toward the future God has promised for which we watch 
and wait. But that doesn't happen automatically. It happens as we engage the season intentionally to be formed, to be shaped, to seek the God who seeks us, to draw near to the God who has torn open the heavens to come down. And so this Advent, as we, as we come to this space, as we seek to grow up more in the likeness of Christ, as we seek to be restored in our hope and reoriented to the world, let us remember the veil is thin because he's torn open the heavens and come down. God is nearer than you think, and Christ will come again. So when he does, may the Lord give us grace that he would find us watching and waiting. Let's pray. Our God of hope and peace, we pray that you would meet us this Advent season and stir our hearts and our minds to love you more deeply. We pray that we would worship you with our whole being. We pray that we would be drawn into your presence where we have been distant. We pray that your light would dawn in our darkness where we have felt that there is no light to be found. We pray that you would warm us to your presence, that you would warm us to others, that we would become more loving and more hopeful, and that as we remember the story of Jesus and how you met your people in their long night of waiting, that you would meet us and form us into the kind of people who wait well in faith, in hope, in love, watching and waiting for the return of our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.